0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your editor in chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology COVID-19 Series 2021. I am Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist and assistant clinical professor of dermatology at the FIU Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine in Miami, Florida. I will be your host. Today's topic centers around COVID-19 vaccines and boosters for our dermatology patients. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Talbot. Dr. Talbot is professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and also serves as the chief hospital epidemiologist for Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Talbot is a recognized expert in the field of healthcare epidemiology and infection control and has more than 110 peer reviewed journals. He has served as a member of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee, that's HICPAC, and will serve as the vice president for the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America in 2022. At Vanderbilt, he has helped lead the institutional response to the COVID 19 pandemic. Dr. Talbot, Tom, Thanks for being here today. Very much looking forward to our dialogue.
1: Yeah, Brad. thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thank you. Let's jump right in and start by discussing the basics of different vaccines that are available. Just briefly, their similarities and their differences and just how do the vaccines work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cause I think it's always good to go back to the beginning. So we'll talk about kind of the two main types of vaccines. There's the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna are the two big ones that we use. And we'll talk a little bit later about the J&J vaccine as well. So all vaccines, what they're trying to do is they're trying to not trick your immune system, but give your immune system a leg up. So expose it to either proteins or, or signals of an infectious disease that then you build that immunity, you build the antibodies, you build the T cells and the B cells. So in the future, when you encounter the real virus or bacteria, you have that in your repertoire. So you don't get sick or as sick in the event of some vaccines. And these vaccines are the same way. The messenger RNA vaccines are really simple. They're pretty elegant in their simplicity. They're basically salt water, sugar water, and the messenger RNA for those spike proteins that you see on all the the coronavirus cartoons, those really key proteins. That's the most important part of the virus. That's what causes the virus to stick in our airway cells, to to replicate, to spread to others. And so when you get the vaccine, your body engulfs the, the vaccine, gets that messenger RNA, does what a cell does, makes that protein, puts it on the outside of your muscle cell, and your body's immune system takes over and says, this is foreign, it's not supposed to be here, let's figure that out, let's make some antibodies, let's make some cells. That's why you feel a little puny after you get these vaccines. The J&J vaccine's a lot like that. It's a kind of a more classic vaccine. It's in an adenovirus shell, like a Trojan horse. So adenovirus causes infections. This is one that's attenuated and can't make you sick. So they take the shell of the virus, They put the DNA code for the spike protein. Once you get the vaccine, those are read and creates the same process. So you're really trying to just make those antibodies, make those cells. So in the future, you've got that protection and and when you actually encounter the real COVID virus.
0: With that said, and I appreciate that really excellent uh, explanation, super concise, because I'm sure it's in detail. (laughs) It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, what about the safety? What have we learned about the safety of these vaccines?
1: Yeah, really good question. So we have now, as of yesterday, I think, given over 440 million doses of of the vaccines in the U.S. So we've had very good, thorough safety surveillance. And what I always tell folks at this point is, in the pandemic, we have two pathways to walk on, and there's only two. We have the risk of getting exposed to the virus, the complications of getting that, getting sick, even dying, or having things like long covid and the risk of the vaccine. And so no medications are 100% safe. So there are some very rare effects that we're seeing with the vaccine. So things that have been seen are about nine per million instances of an allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, with the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine. We're seeing about 20 per million reaction of myocarditis, mainly in younger men, which we think may have something to do with testosterone, and not seen in women. And we're seeing that. But importantly, COVID infection causes that complication at about a rate of about 20 times the rate of the vaccine. So as you measure the paths you're walking on, that risk. And then the Johnson Johnson vaccine, you may recall, got removed for a little bit, for about five weeks in the spring because of a really rare but very significant blood clot issue with low platelets, almost exclusively in women. In fact, three women died from the vaccine, uh, from those complications. And so that's about a rate of, I think, about nine per million. If you've had a prior history of blood clots, you're not predisposed to this reaction. And then they've also, the last kind of signal that's been noted is rarely with the J&J vaccine, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which we do see rarely with other viral infections. We see it with COVID. We see it with this vaccine. But other than that, overwhelmingly, the safety has been very, very reassuring as far as lingering effects, particularly in folks like pregnant women, those with immunocompromised, it's it's continuing to be very safe, again, in parallel to walking that path of getting infected and the risk of getting an infection. We know the complications of, of that kind of pathway if we choose that route,
0: It seems to me like there is some degree of expected consequences and specifically, it doesn't seem like we're getting particular safety signals with the vaccines. Absolutely. I, I wanted to just segue from that into our specialty of dermatology. Can you discuss the use of the vaccines as it relates to our dermatology patients? And I'll extend that by saying, Now, what does it look like, the optics of the clinicians, you, an epidemiologist and an infectious disease specialist, and then through the optics of the patients in conditions like psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, auto-inflammatory conditions, in those patients who might be on immunomodulatory drugs like biologic therapies, cyclosporine, methotrexate, et cetera? Your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So that's been a, a big question that comes up, not you know, definitely with that population and other populations with either chronic illnesses, autoimmune inflammatory syndromes, the question of whether the vaccines by nature of revving up an immune response, will they worsen the underlying diseases? And we are not seeing signals like that at all in any of the data as far as flares of autoimmune disorder, any of these kinds of other conditions. We do know though that many of these patients are themselves, if they get COVID, increased risk to get severe infection and complications, particularly if they're on some of the medications like the immunomodulators, where, you know, so that risk, if they get exposed to COVID virus, of having a really severe and poor outcome is really there. So a lot of the professional societies have said, you know, we're not seeing signals that this worsens your underlying disease, and we are seeing signals of the increased risk of complications if you're infected. So again, going to the two pathways, the risk is really much more so if you risk um, getting exposed to that virus and getting really sick versus the vaccine. And that's reassuring that that continues now again, millions and millions of doses, not seeing even rare signals like flares of certain autoimmune diseases. You were not seeing that in the data, which was really, really, really nice.
0: I will share, however, that I have seen some patients that have come in and at least verbalized, uh, Doc, I have to tell you about a month after my vaccine, my lupus flared, my MS flared. But from what I'm hearing from you as an expert in this arena, it's kind of like, They are rare consequences. And when we look at the 440 million people you shared have been vaccinated, since we're hearing about this infrequently, this is why we have a registry. And in dermatology, we have the COVID-19 registry. I mean, we see cases that are reported, but the volume of cases, at least through my optics as a dermatologist, don't appear to be specific signals.
1: Yeah. And I think when you give millions of doses a drug, there are going to be events that were going to happen anyway. So we heard a story of someone that was going to get a booster and they said not to and the next day, they had a heart attack. And if they'd gotten the booster, did the booster cause the heart attack? You know, so that's always the difficulty is how you tease out those signals. And so I'm like you, yeah, I've heard stories too of, oh, I flared a couple of weeks later and are they related? That, but they're not seeing, it, at least on the population level, these happening an event that is above what we'd see at the baseline of activity. So Again, it's difficult science. I don't do that science, but I respect those that do, for sure.
0: Speaking of boosters, talk to us about boosters. Who should get them? Should everyone get them? Why are we even doing boosters?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, this is Wednesday, November 17th, and this information may be dated in about two days. So the reason for boosters, what we have seen with COVID, the vaccines are extremely effective. When they came out in the trials, they over 90% effective at preventing symptomatic disease, preventing people going in the hospital, getting on the in- intubator, on the ventilator, go- dying from the infection. But we've seen over time, distance from vaccination, particularly with the Delta variant, that's the new variant that's kind of caused all the disease now across the world. It's more infectious, maybe makes you more sick, that that effectiveness has started to slip a little bit. It still seems very effective against the severe disease. But for any type of infection, you're, you're seeing some slip. And you'll hear in the news a lot about a breakthrough case so-and-so is vaccinated and, and got COVID. Now, overwhelmingly, we're still seeing that most of the folks getting infected by far are unvaccinated. The data from the CDC are about six times greater chance of getting infected if you're unvaccinated than vaccinated. But that number of vaccinated getting infection has started to go up. And with the Delta wave and the Delta surge, there's really even that much more impetus to really try and get things under control. So the CDC and the FDA reviewed kind of groups, and they said there's some groups that are at increased risk for COVID, even small now if they get it. So everyone's 65 and up, people with medical conditions between 18 and 64, people live in chronic congregating settings like nursing homes. And those are folks that they recommended boosters in the first wave. And then they added on healthcare workers and people that are increased risk of exposure, because as you probably know, with the surge, a nurse that gets mild COVID still has to be put out of the hospital for 10 days. And with the surge caring for anybody was not because we didn't have a place for them, but we didn't have people to care for them. So that was really vital. Then the FDA and CDC looked at, well, can you mix and match your boosters? And you know, if I got Pfizer, do I get Moderna? And we may talk about that. Now what folks are realizing is we're continuing to have some uptick in the upper Midwest and surge. Uh, folks have really pushed that everybody should get a booster. All adults should just get a booster because it's gotten confusing for people to know, am I in that group or do I not? And so what's coming later this week we, we hear is the FDA will broaden the booster recommendation to every adult, 18 and up, and the CDC will meet Friday and probably also take that. So it'll be much clearer that if you know, that you're an adult, get, get that third dose, go ahead and get that dose. And I think a lot of that has to just do with, we're trying to just tamp down the pandemic. I don't know that that means in six more months, we need another booster, I think. But right now, given how things are active, we've got to tamp things down and get everybody kind of protected and really make sure this spread stops.
0: So well said, and I really appreciate the knowledge. Talk to us about the the patient who's in our clinic and they tell us, you know, doc, I got a question for you. I had COVID-19 about two, three months ago. Should I get the vaccine? And what I'll add in there is what about the antibody tests? What is the significance? Which one do we do? What do we recommend to our patients?
1: Yeah. So the short answer is you've got to ignore all that. And now I'll tell you why. So We do know that if you have natural infection, you do get some immune, you get some bump in the antibodies, you get obviously some cellular immunity. But even before the Delta wave, there were a couple of things that were noted. One is the level of the really important antibodies, the neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein. That's really the key thing. It'll it'll glom on that virus, prevent things from infecting your cells. Those levels in natural infection versus vaccination were very different and vaccine had a much higher level. So we saw people would lose that antibody earlier with natural infection, even before Delta. We also see that, um, and the way I kind of describe this is natural infection makes antibodies to all parts of the virus, all over the cell, right? All over the the virus. Um, And to the spike protein, it maybe makes a couple flavors of antibodies. So maybe chocolate and vanilla, right? The vaccine really targets that spike protein. So not only do you get chocolate, vanilla, you get Rocky Road and strawberry swirl. (laughs) So when, when that spike protein changes, like it is with the variants, you are more likely to have antibodies that still work with vaccination than your prior infection. And the problem is if you go like, oh, I went and gave blood and I have detectable antibodies. We don't know now whether those detectable antibodies still work against what's out there. It doesn't mean you're protected. And I worry that you think you've walked down this pathway of, oh, I got exposed and I did fine when you've really been pulled back to the starting line again, right? And and interestingly, there was a study that just came out that looked at severe COVID. So people having to go to the hospital with COVID. I and mean, this is in the Delta wave, and they found that the risk of having to go in the hospital with COVID, with Delta, was over five times greater if you had prior infection and not vaccinated versus if you were vaccinated. So we're starting to see this bear out in that, that natural immunity is just not as protective and can be lost easier, and we really don't know where you sit, even if you have detectable antibodies. So message is, even if you've got antibodies, even if you had it, go ahead and get vaccinated.
0: Wonderful. I need you to take out your crystal ball, Dr. Talbot. What about waves? What do you think? Are we going to get a fifth? Are there more coming? Are there going to be other variants? Tell me your opinion.
1: Yeah, I actually, so I think we're starting to get a little bit of an uptick in activity this week in the U.S., for sure. Um, It does still seem to be the Delta variant. It does still seem to be unvaccinated. It may be because everybody started to move inside. It got colder, right? We're starting to circulate. And, And people are really kind of going back to how they normally interact. So I think we're gonna have a little bit of a bump. I don't think it's gonna be as pronounced as it was in late summer or last winter, because we've got a lot more people who are immunized and who are protected. Uh, So I think we're we're in a better shape. Um, I think we're at risk to get a new variant um, just because as long as the virus circulates around the world, there's always that chance to mutate. And so that's why we've got to vaccine everybody in the US and the world. The one, the one I, I told someone this today and they said, well, you're being a Debbie Downer. And I was like, well, that's where we are. The one glimmer <laughs> of, of optimism is a couple glimmers, but last spring around May and June, when we were all ready and thought this was done and rates were coming down and we, we, yeah, we took off the mask. And then a couple weeks later, Delta wave took off. We knew at that point in the spring before we took off in the U S that there were some very serious outbreaks of the Delta variant in countries like India and United Kingdom. So we knew there was one already out there already causing havoc in the world. We don't, knock on wood, have another variant right now that's to that level that we're aware of. So we're in a better place in that sense. We got more people immunized. We're gonna start to get oral antivirals in play where you can treat people sooner that won't spread to others sooner. So that's gonna help us. So I think we're in a better place than we were a year ago and a better place than we were this summer. But I think we're gonna have to get comfortable living with COVID and comfortable with what that means. And I, I think eventually, as we get enough people protected, where the, the risk is not as great, it'll become more like a cold virus or the flu. And honestly, we don't take the flu as serious as we should some years, but I think we'll approach it differently. Will people have to go and isolate for 10 days when they have COVID? Probably not, but but we have to get there. And, and I don't know when that will be. Will it be in the next year? We're going to have to bring some people with us because some people are really anxious and some are ready to Ditched the masks a year ago. So I think that's my best thing. And I reserve the right to change my mind in a week when things are changed.
0: (laughs) Two other things too, still on boosters. Talk about crossing over, almost like cross immunity. I'll share this with you, a, a personal anecdote. Somewhat an accident and unique to what I had heard, my spouse ended up getting a Moderna vaccine when she, as a booster, uh, because she had some health issues, after having had two Pfizer's. Yeah. So I, I was ahead of the game, so <laughs> to speak. But then again, tell us about crossing over.
1: Yeah, so once we had the studies that showed when you you had the regular doses and good immune boosts, folks began even that point back in the UK to look, what if you got dose of one and dose of another one? Does it give you better protection, same protection, worse protection? So whether it's like an adenoviral vaccine and mRNA, and and that obviously ramped up as the discussion for boosters continued. And folks have found that pretty much uniformly mixing and matching gives you really high levels of those neutralizing antibodies, whether it's Pfizer than Moderna, Pfizer than J&J, J than mRNA. So CDC gives a preference to stick with what you got before, but really actively allows mixing and matching. And there's a couple scenarios where you may say, I maybe want to do something specific. So for example, if you're a woman of childbearing age, 30 years old, and you got the J&J for your first dose, and two months later for J&J, you're ready for booster, you may say, you know, I know the risk of those blood clots are really, really low, but Pfizer didn't have that at all. So go ahead and boost with the Pfizer instead. And that's okay. That's absolutely fine. You get bumped up as well. So that mixing and matching really does seem to work and, and, and helps folks. The only groups right now that aren't being boosted, at least we think through Friday, will be the adolescents and the kids. They're still at their primary Pfizer doses.
0: You're still in some of my thunder and what I'm thinking is follow-up questions. Yeah. So that's great. It's always the sign of a, a wonderful speaker and interviewee. What about women of childbearing potential, pregnancy itself, And I'll segue into the other topic which comes out of this, at least in my optics, still having four in about 40 employees in my clinics who are unvaccinated, sadly so, and they're being tested every week and as needed. Segwaying from women of childbearing potential, pregnant women, and also this concept of vaccine hesitancy. So I'm throwing a lot at you there, but you dance yeah. around this very nicely.
1: Yeah. So let's start with the woman of childbearing age, thinking of getting pregnant, having infertility issues, pregnant now, breastfeeding. So understandably, those pregnant women were not in many of the first trials. They were screened out. And some, a few women did get pregnant in the clinical trials and have done fine, but raise that question. And it's striking how much misinformation and confusion is out there, but particularly in this issue about, oh my gosh, it's going to integrate in your genome. Or for a while, there was the... If you make an antibody to the spike protein, you can't make a placenta, you'll be infertile, and that was not true. But a lot of just confusion in folks who are pregnant, trying to get pregnant. So the data now show, we know that if you are pregnant and you get COVID, your risk of dying, your risk of substantial illness, your risk of harm to the baby, premature delivery is substantially higher on the order of multi, multi-fold higher than if you didn't get COVID infection. So we know again, going to the two pathways, risk very high if you get COVID compared to a woman at the same age. And we've had some devastating cases of pregnant women lose their baby, lose their lives with this as well. On the other hand, we see with the vaccine and pregnancy and women of childbearing ages, we're not seeing any signals or increase both in Israel and the CDC's registry of uptick in premature abortions, miscarriages, fetal death, maternal death, um, premature delivery, any of those significant outcomes higher than the baseline rate that you'd be quoted going to your OB. So we're not seeing signals in those from vaccinated. Same thing with infertility. We've had numerous women now being followed. They've been pregnant, thousands of women successfully pregnant afterwards. But we are seeing with COVID infection, you know, that, that receptor that the virus sticks to in the airway, the ACE2 receptor is all over our bodies. It's in ovaries, it's in the uterus, it's in testicles. And so now studies are coming out showing male infertility and impetus, impotence after COVID infection, concerns for female infertility from infection. So we're so again, we're not seeing signals of infertility risk with the vaccine, but we are seeing it if you get COVID. So we profoundly we strongly advise, and it's interesting, we actually have a colleague of mine, an ID doctor, who got vaccinated a couple months later is now pregnant. And it was, she kind of joked because we, we did videos with her. They're on YouTube now for Vanderbilt where I talk with her about there these risks and as a pregnant woman, and that's been more effective than quoting the studies when they see someone like her, you know, wow, you know, and say that. And so we really found a good impact of, with our nursing staff, those kind of messages. And then I want to hit on, I think the question about vaccination and I, I often, I don't like to use hesitancy only because someone taught me that it, it puts an onus on the person, like something, Oh, what's wrong with you? Why won't you get it? And I think right now there is just absolutely so much misinformation and falsities and confusion and what's real and what's not that people are just legitimately like, I don't know which way is up. And so I have found the best way to do this. And what someone told me is I want to just get them more ready. And it may be the conversation gets them closer to ready, plants that seed. They may not be ready yet. Or maybe it gets them all the way there. But in a non-judgmental way, just say, hey, what have you heard? What are your concerns? Oh, where did you get that? Oh, you heard 12,000 people have died after getting COVID vaccine. Well, let's talk about where that came from. Let's talk about how that's a misinformation and what that means and why that would be confusing. And, and so that's been, you know, I don't get everybody, but we've gotten, you know, just as you sit and kind of walk through those questions and kind of concerns with a listening eye, not judgmental, that's been really helpful. There are some people that just absolutely are not going to get the vaccine. And that, I come to them from a place of, I, we see the people coming in, most of our folks are unvaccinated, the, how sick they are, how devastating that is to the families. And, and as I tell them, I was like, you know, if ivermectin worked, I would give it to you because I don't want people coming in sick, regardless of your beliefs or whatever. I, I, the suffering is too incomprehensible. And I think just now, so preventable. So coming with that kind of ear and that listening and some people you'll get and some people may need to have a couple more conversations. But that's how I've kind of tackled
0: it. Maybe vaccine apprehension is a better, yeah, uh, yeah, I a think better yeah. terminology there. Yeah. I want to wrap up, and this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I want to wrap up with the kiddos, the pediatric population, your thoughts. We've obviously now going down into that adolescent pediatric population. Tell us about the peds, the vaccine, talk about vaccine apprehension, thinking of what parents, what their concerns are, and how low will we go? Down to what age will we go in the midst of this pandemic? So we
1: now have emergency use authorization for Pfizer vaccine for adolescents, which is the same dose as adults, 12 to 17 year old. And full disclosure, I have a 15 year old and a 16 year old and they're vaccinated. They willingly were vaccinated. So I've kind of had a thought as a parent. And then a couple of weeks ago, we now have the lower dose Pfizer. It's a third dose of the adult adolescent for five to 11 year olds. The data show in both adolescents now, both in the studies and now real world, the prevention of hospitalization and severe infection and even symptomatic infection, 93 plus percent. It's very effective. In the kiddos and then five to 11 year old 91% effective. So they they work, they're preventing disease. I think as I've counseled folks, is I think I always tell folks we're building this plane as we've been flying it with COVID. And I remember March of 2020, I was interviewed and told people oh, no, there's you know, asymptomatic transmission from COVID-infected people is probably really small. That's wrong. We learned how significant that was, that people could have no symptoms and spread very effectively. So we're building this plane as we fly, and we're learning things with science. And one of the dogmatic things that came out and really has gotten a foothold is kids aren't impacted by COVID. Kids don't get sick with COVID, right? And I think remembering that most kids for about a year weren't normal kids. They may not have been in school. If they were, they were masked and behind plexiglass. They weren't doing camping and sporting events as they normally would. So it wasn't until the Delta wave that they started interacting. And CDC has some really good slides when they approved the five to 11 vaccine on the impact in kids. So over 2 million kids have been infected. About 8,000 kids have had to go in the hospital, which seems low, but kids don't go in the hospital with viral infection. And a third of them went to the ICU. Those young kids 5 to 11 have the inflammatory syndrome after vaccine, That the, the, I mean, after infection. And we're even seeing long COVID in kids. About 8% of kids three months later getting long COVID. And one thing that struck me, too, is just the intangibles of school closures, being isolated, being quarantined, not getting regular health care, that impact on children. And the last thing I'll add is that to hopefully convince folks that COVID does affect kids is the CDC has two really good slides where they compare other infectious diseases that we routinely Vaccinate our kids against like chicken pox and flu. And they looked at the rates of, of hospitalizations due to those infections and deaths due to those infections in the few years before they recommended vaccinating our kids against those infectious diseases. And they lined it up with COVID and COVID fits right there. And in fact, many cases has more cases in terms of deaths and hospitalization. So from a data standpoint, if we vaccinate against these seven infectious diseases, it makes sense looking at the data that COVID should as well. So I think, that, I think right now it's pretty clear that five and up. Younger kids, we'll see what the data show as far as protecting them. They do seem to have less infection, honestly. And so some of that may be some of the passive immunity from the moms and other things when they're a little bitty, but we'll see with that one. But more to come with that. That vaccine for little kids, little littles, probably not until early 2022.
0: Dr. Talbot, I'm sure our Dialogues in Dermatology audience joins me not only in thanking you, but this is a really wonderful educational experience. And we all very much look forward to the next Dialogues in Dermatology. And Dr. Talbot, let's do a part two. I'm sure our audience will really appreciate that.
1: Part part two when the pandemic's over, and we can just be happy. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Stay well. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.